The status quo is a fickle beast. You want to change it or challenge it? It takes a Herculean effort over a seemingly interminable span of time. Years, decades even. You want to maintain the status quo? Good luck. That's actually impossible, because change is the only constant and nothing lasts forever, so on a long enough timeline, the status quo is going to shift at some point. Then, of course, the very minute you rely on the status quo being the status quo, the minute you take it for granted, the first time you assume, or even worse, need the way things are to stay the way things are, that's exactly when the whole world implodes, collapses, falls apart, and slowly lowers itself into a white-hot vat of your own molten expectations, like Arnold Schwarzenegger at the end of Terminator 2, except he's giving you the finger instead of a painfully sincere thumbs up. That must have been how John McTiernan and company felt in making today's film. After almost half a century being able to churn out Cold War spy thrillers like there was no tomorrow, there was finally a tomorrow. The Berlin Wall came down, the Soviet Union crumbled, and the West never had to worry about aggressive Russian expansion ever again. So 1990 was an unfortunate time to be releasing the big screen adaptation of one of the best-selling military spy thrillers of the entire Cold War era. Based on Tom Clancy's debut novel, it's the near-future story of a sort of sci-fi submarine under the command of legendary Scottish, I mean Russian, I mean Lithuanian submarine commander Marco Ramius and marine badass turned bookish history nerd CIA analyst Jack Ryan separately working to maintain the status quo and steer the world back from the brink of nuclear Armageddon. There's no way you're not going to make that movie. You already have the script, the cast, the support of the Defense Department. The wheels are in motion and they aren't going to stop over some spilt tea. Even if that tea is some pesky little world-changing, history-making, geopolitical, landscape-altering social upheaval. War is hell. People make films about it. And we love to talk about them. So come kiss some babies and steal their lollipops with a marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director. As we verify our range to target, one ping only, and discuss John McTiernan's poorly timed and slightly dated, yet no less beloved, PG-rated follow-up to Die Hard, starring Alec Baldwin, Scott Glenn, Sam Neill, and Tim Curry, as well as Sean Connery, Sean Connery's accent, and Sean Connery's hairpiece. From the halcyon days of 1990, The Hunt for Red October. Welcome back to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I'm here with my partners, Katie and Liam. Today, we are here to talk about a very popular film set during the Cold War, The Hunt for Red October from 1990, directed by none other than John McTiernan, who we talked about recently on our Predator DCE episode. And Katie's here to start us off with the mission briefing. 
Tom Clancy was one of the best-selling novelists of his era, and his debut novel, also named The Hunt for Red October, was an instant hit with audiences, the U.S. military, and famously then-President Ronald Reagan. Clancy was instrumental in popularizing the techno-thriller genre, and his books have had a big influence on American pop culture in a way that the works of other bestsellers, such as Stephen King or Danielle Steele, have not. Screenwriters Larry Ferguson and Donald Stewart, with a few rewrites by John Milius, penned the eventual film script and stayed fairly close to Clancy's story with their version, although some last-minute adjustments did have to be made due to the fall of the Soviet Union just before the film's release. The Hunt for Red October was a box office success and went on to win an Oscar for sound editing. The critical reviews, however, were mixed. Plenty of critics liked the film, including Roger Ebert, but there was also some detailed criticism about the jingoistic nature of the plot and feeling out of touch with its focus on the Cold War. In addition, some felt that the special effects were painfully bad, the dialogue was stilted, and McTiernan's choice to have everyone mostly speak English gave mixed results at best. However, the acting was considered well done, giving life to characters that at some points feel paper-thin. Sean Connery in particular was highly praised, despite his obvious Scottish accent. Typically for this podcast, we watch films that are at least based in real events. This one is solidly in the realm of fiction. And I found that really colored how I watched the film. And this is kind of a bit vague, but uh, what was the vibe for you guys on this one? Is this really a war film? You know, I would put it in the realm of war film as much as some of the other. We cast a pretty wide net. We do. On this show. Definitely. So this honestly kind of struck me in the same vein as like a seven days in May, where it's something that it's a fictional story about us being on the cusp of war and or a coup and or nuclear annihilation, what have you. So that's kind of where I, I was feeling the the vibe of that, where it kind of not lost me. It didn't lose me right in the beginning where it has that uh, little opening crawl of sorts that makes you think that like, oh, maybe this really did happen. That kind of conceit. It never says based on a true story. That was one of the changes that was made because of the fall of the Soviet Union, because it was no longer like a thing that could happen. Right. If that if the Soviet Union hadn't fallen, they wouldn't have added that in. Yeah. Where it's like, according to so and so, none of this ever happened. Wink. According to everyone, like historians (laughs) and people who exist in the world. Yes, we all agree this didn't happen. But the way that it's presented is a very like, this is the story they don't want you to know right so (laughs) i always have mixed feelings about that kind of thing but at least it didn't come right out and say that this was based on a true story i'm thinking of mike right now who came after us for associating predator with vietnam as opposed to the cold war and you know he was saying like for someone who's 10 years older than us and so he was very much aware of the cold war and all the stuff that was going on in the 70s and 80s and i kind of think this one is very much about perspective and about when you are as an american so right off the bat there's some weird chronology going on with the fall of the Soviet Union basically happening while they were shooting this film or right after they were done shooting. And so instantly they were like, oh, we can't really set this in the present anymore in 1990. Let's set it in 1984 when the book was set, because clearly the book was written, you know, several years before, which makes sense. So it puts the film squarely in, you know, the last decade of the Cold War. 
And I think for many of the adults and older adults who were alive at the time of the book, the Cuban Missile Crisis wasn't that long ago. You know, so there are some very serious events that happened during the Cold War that were pretty prominent in everyone's mind, including the threat of nuclear annihilation of the U.S. and a a thermonuclear world war. So while now I think maybe some things we can look back and they look kind of quaint or you can be like, oh, this is historical science fiction because of the caterpillar drive and stuff like that. But I think the fears and the potential of this being a real story were very real for people, certainly in the 80s and early 90s. The book is all was also inspired by two real events. In fact, probably maybe three. One was the deviation of a Soviet Navy submarine to Gotland in 1961 by a Lithuanian captain. Two was a 1975 mutiny aboard the Soviet frigate, oh man, I'm not going to be able to say this one, sorry, Ali, Stora Zevoy, which was an attempt to defect to Gotland by Captain Valery Sablin. Also, the throwaway line about the MiG defector, like there really was a MiG pilot who defected to the US. So <clears throat> defections from the Soviet Union did happen. And so I'm sure that was a fear that was in the minds of people at the Kremlin and something that US officials thought about as well. Plus, Tom Clancy has read a lot of history, naval history. We'll talk about this a lot more. He was clearly up with the times in terms of the technology. So, yeah, I I don't know. I think in 1990, this film probably had a much more real feel to it. Fall of the Soviet Union aside, which is something that neither Tom Clancy nor McTiernan nor the production could have predicted while they were shooting the film. So, yeah, I think you have to take a step back and kind of take that into consideration. But um, I'm curious to hear Katie's thoughts since she came up with the question. I, too, am very much interested to hear Katie's take on this. But what you said, Dan, just put me in mind of movie going back in the early to mid 90s. Nobody knew who to make the villain anymore (laughs) Mm -hmm. after the Berlin Wall fell down. Like after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we kind of lost our built in bad guy for a lot of international thrillers. So for a while, you still had like the Russians were still involved, but nobody like it was faction splinter groups that were trying to rebuild the Soviet Union or they'd mm-hmm. gone rogue and stolen a nuke and things like that. Right. Right. But there was always just like some Russian people, vague Russian people around in the background, just because we didn't know what to do with it. And this is an interesting, I think, kind of turning point in that when it's like, well, we can still make them Russian. Right. <laughs> Obviously, you have to set it back in 1984. But this is like the first time that they really had to pump the brakes for a second. Yes. I agree. As I was watching it, it just all feels a bit silly. I think the thing that really differentiated it is because this is a Jack Ryan novel, which, of course, I obviously did not watch this when it came out because I would have been five uh, and probably bored as hell. (laughs) And so I don't have any of that perspective. So watching it now and I know, you know, I've seen a couple other Jack Ryan movies. I've, I've never read any of Tom Clancy's books about the character, but I'm familiar with the tropes, as they say. And... You know that if Jack Ryan's got this idea, then it's got to be true because then the whole conceit falls apart if Jack Ryan isn't right. Like, that's just not the kind of story that's being told. You know, from the beginning, you know how everything is going to play out. And that's not unusual for the films we watch. I mean, obviously, we know how D-Day went. But in this, it just feels kind of trite and silly. And that final, not the final twist that the saboteur is still on board, but the twist where it's all, it's all fake with the radiation scare. Mm. 
that is just like, oh, okay. So, I mean, it's still fun to watch, but that was my my vibe on it was like, oh, this is such a, it's a candy movie. But why? I, I want to, I don't want to like linger on this for too long, but like, why is the radiation scare? Why does that feel silly to you? Again, I have not read the book, but there are things in this movie that I think would have felt like much bigger reveals on the page. Oh, totally. Mm. Totally. Especially because this was the first. Oh, that scene where he's like, you know, shaving and he's like, how do you get, how do you get them to want to get off the submarine? How do you get a crew to want to get off a nuclear submarine? Right. Ding! And like you see the light bulb go off. And then it isn't really mentioned again, apart from he goes, I know how he's going to do it in the very next cut. And then they don't bring it up. But then later on, the nuclear thing goes off. And like, I feel like in the book, that might play better on the page than it does on the screen. Yes, I think so, too. It's very set up. You can see like the domino pieces being carefully laid out for you. And so you know exactly the path that the movie is going to follow, which, again, this is totally a me thing for me. I just, oh, this is so silly. Like, But that's what you're getting when you're watching this kind of film. And that was kind of the vibe for me was so different than something that we usually watch where there is a little bit more weight to what's Mm. going on, even when it's something like Mr. Roberts that we watched recently, where it's definitely a comedy. But then that final end scene where the reveal comes that, oh, he died drinking coffee it is a gut punch still. That was it was just such a difference between what we've been watching recently and this. Interesting. OK, yeah, I, I guess to me, the the potential threat of thermonuclear world war is not something that I think of as light. So like that, that part and no. it, it was so real at the time that I'm like, I get that. I think maybe what you're getting pulled into is the like unsettled nature of the film and the writing. It is not nuanced and everything. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. All of the twists okay. in it are relatively obvious right? and telegraphed as a viewing experience. I think the way these things are presented are coming off a little bit. Yeah. Obvious has got to be the best word for it. Sure. It's like, Oh, there aren't really any moments where you go, Oh, like the closest thing you're like, oh, it was the fucking cook. I knew that from the first minute. From the first time you see that cook. A lot of this falls into the (laughs) fact that I've watched so many movies and I think about movies like this. There is a shot where it's not the cook. It's the cook's assistant. Oh, right. Let's not elevate him. Let's not slander the cook. Exactly. (laughs) The cook had nothing to do with it. God damn it. Uh, Right after the character named Putin, which I thought was hilarious, dies. Come here. Your name? Cook's assistant, Logan officer. Good. The cook's assistant is the one who stands witness. And there's no, no reason to bring that guy into it. Everything that happens in this movie has a reason for happening that plays out down the road. There are no false alleys or anything like that. Which is very McTiernan, too. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. It, yeah McTiernan's like all about Chekhov's gun. It kind of right. like Cameron in that way. You're not going to see a wasted reference where later you go... What happened to that guy? I mean, you know, unless it's a victim of bad editing, but like, yeah, McTiernan is exactly. pretty straight. And so therefore that really undercuts the threats of thermonuclear war, because I know mm. that in this film, there never are actually any threats of thermonuclear war, because I see exactly how it's all going to play out. And that to me is like, it gets awfully close to big, stupid fun. It's not big enough to be big, stupid fun, and it's not stupid enough, but it's still like it's riding that line. Okay. I I see what you're saying. I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. Just I think I'm on the other side of that curtain where like it didn't 
cross the line, but I definitely, I see the unsubtle point. The whole Alec Baldwin in the shower scene, I was like, one, he's like literally just talking to himself out loud like a crazy person in the shower. Yes. Two, you're not going to show me a full upper body shot of Alec Baldwin naked in his like super hot body from the, right? from 1990. Like, come on, man. We, what is this? If this were a Kevin Costner movie, you'd have that ass right in your face. You'd be eating it. <laughs> I just wanted the chest. <laughs> Kevin Costner in the early 90s was all about the base. His own base. He was originally the one they wanted for this role. But I think he was doing Dances with Wolves. Yes, he turned it down to, to do Dances with Wolves. Yeah, because this has a very similar vibe to No Way Out. Oh, I haven't seen that. I haven't either. It's another Cold War military thriller. Okay. Yeah, about espionage and things like that. It's that might make a good DCE. It's not it's not main right. feed kind of material, but it's Kevin Costner and Sean Young doing it in the back of the limo. If you've seen that parody, you had me at Sean Young, right? Okay. I yep. know I would. Right. <laughs> yeah, this this movie is um, it's it's a good popcorn chomper. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Is where it kind of falls for me, where now, you guys have both seen this before. Mm hmm. Oh, yeah, but it had been a long time, maybe 20 oh, it'd years, been a hot minute for, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I think I saw this not when it came out, but maybe like a couple of years afterwards. This was one that we rented. I didn't I didn't make it into the theater to see it. I think for my family, too. And I remember thinking it was good and a little boring when I when I was younger. The pacing on this was a consistent complaint in critic fields is that it, it feels very slow moving. I'm not sure I agree with that, by the way, but that was the, that was definitely a critical consensus at the time was that it was way too plotting. The one bad review or the synopsis of a bad review that I read that kind of leans over on Katie's point is that it was basically describing it as something that is trying to come off way more complex than it actually is. And I could see that. Yeah. I, I can definitely agree with that. Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty straightforward kind of movie. Like even the twists are kind of straightforward. Yeah. Twists such as they are, you know, he kills the guy and makes it look like an accident sort of. And you're like, Oh, why do you do that? And then in the next scene, he's like, Hey, we're all defecting still, right? Everyone raise your hand if you're defecting. Yeah. <laughs> We're good, we're good. Defect, defect, defect. If you're not, I'll kill you, just so you know. I've already killed the one person who was the problem, so, like, we should all just be on board. We're doing this. (laughs) Which takes all of the questions out of it. All of them. (laughs) Yep, exactly. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I could see that. Did you guys recognize the, not one, but two actors from Gladiator in this? Well, it's been an awful long time since I've watched Gladiator. Yeah. I don't subject yeah. myself to... Oh, it's fine. I don't need you to guess. Like, you either saw it or you didn't. Like, it's pretty obvious, or it was obvious to me. First of all, the most gigantic Russian with the full beard, which you can see him, like, when they're on top of the Red October waiting oh, yeah. for the... Uh, he's, like, twice the size of everyone else. Yes. He's very obviously placed. That's Fennel Thornson. He's, like, the German gladiator that Russell Crowe fights. And, of course, he's in Conan the Barbarian. As mm. one of the one of the henchmen, because he's just he's this gigantic bodybuilder from Europe from the 80s and 90s. So it's like pretty clear. He's just so huge. Right. And then uh, Thomas Arana, who played Lajanov, the cook's assistant, is Quintus, <laughs> which, oh. which I, I'm going to have to put this clip in here when he starts shooting at him. And I realized who it was. I instantly was like, why are you armed, Quintus? <laughs> 
<laughs> from the scene where he comes to get Russell Crowe when he gets arrested. I was like, oh, shit. But yeah, there's a lot of familiar faces in here, including a pretty early role for Stellan Skarsgård. I was going to say, young, beautiful Stellan Skarsgård, fucking killing right? it. And Russian looking for, you know, clearly Scandinavian. And he's just like, he smokes like a, a stressed out Russian. Yeah. He does. God bless. He's so good. Like some of these people pull off looking Russian and some of them do not, like clearly Sean Connery, but... Oh, he can pull off looking Russian. He just can't pull off sounding Russian. I guess he has to look Lithuanian, so it works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yep. he's just, he looks old and grizzled and still beautiful, so it's fine. Right. But, like, he sounds Scottish. That was my wife's big complaint. We watched this together as a family, and it was very nice. And <laughs> Tina's problem with it was she was like, I can't get over Sean Connery. Sounded like Sean Connery. She's like, why are they doing this? And I was like, well, you also have to remember this is shortly after Highlander when he played an Egyptian. Wait, what? Oh he played an Egyptian from Spain who fought with a katana. So like they just didn't care what to do with Sean Connery at this point. He was an Egyptian from Spain. Man, it's been too long. He's an Egyptian who had come from the Spanish court because he'd been around for a thousand years, but he was originally Egyptian and then he moved to Spain and somewhere along the way he was in Japan and got a katana that he fought with. Like it's, it is a twisted path that Ramirez walks down in Highlander, but it all sounds like Sean Connery in a movie called Highlander. He was not the Highlander. He was an Egyptian (laughs) Spanish guy from Japan. Greetings. I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez, Chief Metallurgist to King Charles V of Spain, and I'm at your service. Uh, you're giving me some good ideas of what my next DC pick might be, because I haven't seen that in a long time. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> I'll watch Highlander all day. Like, I'll be on board with that. I'm glad you brought the language up, because we've talked about this before in war films. And when you're writing and directing, and you're talking about non-English speaking characters, you have to make this decision at some point, right? Unless you're just really making a shit movie where you have half the people speaking one language and half the people speaking another. At some point you have to decide, okay, do we make all these people British actors that speak with a British accent, but it's just understood that they're German, like conspiracy, for example, or do we force everyone to try and speak Russian, which you run into other problems there. And now you're taxing your actors with you're using a lot of the actors fuel to focus on the language when really you would like to have the actors focus on their main job, which is the acting. And so I found it interesting the way they transition this film from English to Russian. It's not subtle, but it's also there's just something very McTiernan and very cool to me about how they did it. But I wanted to ask you guys what you thought about that, because for me, it took care of the whole Sean Connery sounds Scottish and other people sound American. It doesn't matter because I'm like, oh, right. They're all speaking Russian right now, not English. So the actor is free to just speak in his natural accent. What did you guys think? So we again, we know what Tina thought clearly right again (laughs) it's not a movie that we've watched yet and hopefully at some point we will but it's not a dissimilar convention from what they use in judgment at Nuremberg oh right you've mentioned it oh you've talked about this yes now in judgment at Nuremberg it's a little bit more artfully done right Mm -hmm. because in this they just zoom into the mouth and then the mouth starts speaking English on the word Armageddon because they picked a word that was 
the same in English as it was in Russian. And so yep. they did, that's where they did the switch over. That's clever. In Judgment at Nuremberg, it's panning around the courtroom and he's speaking German, speaking German, speaking German. And you hear the people translating it through the translation booths because everybody's wearing like these headphones that mm-hmm. they're hearing the translation through when it gets into the booth, then it zooms in on him. And now he's speaking English and you're just like, Oh, they just did this neat little trick there. Yeah. I mean, it sounds to me like judgment in Nuremberg basically gives you a virtual translator headset and tells you to put it on. Like that's what it's yeah. doing, which is cool. Exactly. Right. And it's a really neat thing, especially since everybody else in the movie is still listening in on headphones in their language. So that they can hear, like, they'll react the way that, wait, what did that guy just say? And they pick up the headphone and they're like, wait, what did he just say? You know, so they they carry that through very, very well. Right. I think in this, it's a little bit more confusing who is speaking what language when sometimes. Mm-hmm. Or you forget that they're speaking Russian at a certain point hmm. until they come back in and it's like, wait, now this guy's speaking Russian again. So it's... It's not badly done. Right. But I don't know if I love it. You know what I mean? But I don't know if there's a better choice, you know? I feel like he handled the language differences better in Die Hard. Okay. Yes. You didn't necessarily need to translate everything that they say in Die Hard when they're speaking German. It's just enough German that you understand. You know what I mean? I think that was a lot more seamless than in this. Yeah, again, there's a whole spectrum on how to do this, and clearly different directors have handled it differently. I I picked that as an example because McTiernan directed both. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, how he handled it in Die Hard versus Mm -hmm. how he handled it in this. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting way that he made that difference. Right. Whereas at the beginning of Predator in the Village, there's like a mix of Spanish and Russian going on, and you're like, eh. I guess that makes sense. That's where they are. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess I just have such a soft spot for McTiernan that to me, it was kind of like the director just handing you a little present going here. Will you please accept this language transition from me? And I'm like, yes, John McTiernan. Yes, I will. Because I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, John McTiernan. I don't disagree because that's definitely how it feels. Is It's like, okay, we did our due diligence. We showed you their Russian. Now let's all just relax into English. Exactly. Yeah, We're not going to make you read this movie is what I yeah. Got. that's ex- that's it exactly i think people who went to go see the tom clancy movie would object to having to read the movie half the time right yeah and it doesn't sound like their russian is okay but i did not want to listen to them phonetically butcher the russian language the whole time although i wouldn't have noticed sean connery's scottish accent if he were speaking russian no it was not as pronounced when he was speaking russian because i don't know what russian in a scottish accent sounds right. like i'm sure the russian speakers would have noticed it but i wouldn't have. and he could still be like eh, it's lithuanian i don't have to speak like a regular russian i've got an accent deal with it <laughs> Danger Close is an independent podcast and we do not have any sponsors, but we do like to take the opportunity to cross promote with other small podcasts, especially film, to help each other out. Here's a promo from our friend and Danger Close listener, J.B. Huffman, who runs a movie podcast called Manly Movies. You can find his show on Anchor and everywhere else you listen to podcasts. Now playing on a cell phone near you. A show for all the manly men out there. Where guys talk about their favorite movies and what they can teach us about being a man. Featuring the coolest guests. Murder somebody is not like killing an ant. The most gratifying laughs. It's Tombstone, what can I say? (laughs) (laughs) And a fresh take on movies like you've never heard before. 
this will be the thing that gets written on his proverbial tombstone. We aren't here to criticize the movies you love, but to praise them for how they apply to our lives as husbands, fathers, and really all men in general. So buckle up your seatbelts, because Manly Movies is here. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast catcher. And remember, man up. The basic plot of this movie is, you know, we talked about it being fairly straightforward and not as twisty as it might seem. Sean Connery has this new nuclear sub that is designed to be a first strike weapon against the United States. He doesn't want that. He thinks that's that's bad. So he decides he's going to take it and defect. He handpicks his crew, his officers on the crew, who will be supportive of this idea, and they go off to defect. He kills the political officer. He writes a letter to his uncle saying, hey, I'm defecting. And then they sail off. The entire Russian military goes after them which sends off alarm bells for the American military. The Russian diplomat is trying to get the Americans to also attack the Red October. And it's just up to lowly analyst Jack Ryan to figure out what's going on. And he sees that he's trying to defect and he really wants to help out. So he goes out there in a little tiny submarine that attaches to other submarines. Yes. That we knew we would see again because we see a schematic of it in the beginning. Yeah. That is the Deep Sea Rescue Vehicle Mini Submarine, also known as the DSRV. Mm, okay. Here he gets on the submarine, and it turns out he was right. There was a saboteur on the submarine who's going to like try to ruin things for reasons, because I don't know why that saboteur was doing that, because he didn't really know what was going on. So that was, I guess that's some complex psychology at play. But they kill the saboteur. They blow up the Russian sub or the Russian sub gets blown up that is chasing the Red October. Everybody thinks it is the Red October. The Red October sneaks away to defect successfully to the American side, maintaining the balance of power or tipping it in the favor of the good old US of A. That's the movie, right? Did I miss any glaring points? Yeah, that's basically the movie. Just some characters that add more flavor and depth, like the, mm-hmm. um, the USS Dallas that and all of that stuff that's going on but i would say that is the nuts and bolts of the story yeah so i i do wonder if from book to film somebody just did not have faith in the capability of the average american moviegoer to grasp a slightly more complex plot because the plot is definitely a little simplified the movie is pretty faithful to the book. One thing that I felt kind of bummed about that they left out was they describe Ramius's motivation a little more, especially reference his wife. So in the book, his wife died during routine surgery because the surgeon was drunk and he was politically connected in, in the USSR. And so he was protected from any consequences. And so his wife was basically, in a sense, killed by the Russian government, in a, you know, indirectly. And so he was pissed at the way they handled the negligent killing manslaughter of his wife, as well as not wanting the USSR to start a, a fir- to do a first strike on the US, as well as kind of another aspect of it was twofold. So the character 
character is Lithuanian, and A, in the actual USSR, a Lithuanian would never been given a command of a ballistic submarine because they're not as Russian as Russians, right? So they would not have been as trusted. And that also gives him some motivation, being sort of a little bit of an other in Russian society would give him another reason to sort of not want to be a part of it. And again, in the film, it's more like, well, his wife is dead, so he has no family, so he has no Mm -hmm. reason to want to stay. And so that gives him all the motivation he needs. But yeah, I thought there was a little more to his character and his character's motivations in the book. Mm -hmm. Two, something we run into all the time on this show is the British were involved and they were helping out the Americans in the book. But in this, we're like, (laughs) America, we do it all by ourselves and there is zero British help. So none. I apologize to uh, our British listeners on behalf of America for once again eliminating you guys from the story, despite the fact that this one is fictional. I mean, we didn't make the movie. That's John McTiernan's fault. Or the screenwriters. <laughs> yes, but still. There were a few more spies in the original story. So there was a subplot involving an American spy in the Kremlin, who is the one who provides NATO with the details on the Soviet fleet's mission to sink the Red October. And then there was a KGB spy who's turned by the FBI and used to relay false information back to the Soviets. So cutting those two characters right there, you're already way simplifying the story in terms of how each side is playing this cat and mouse game and how they are getting the information about what the other side thinks and what is actually going on, which again is much more basic and straightforward in the film. And then the ending. The ending in the book, there's a few details in the ending that are different, but essentially... The evacuated crew never witnessed any of the combat with the Soviet Alpha-class submarine, which was sunk by Red October, ramming it, rather than the USS Dallas luring its own torpedo onto it, which... To be honest, the whole torpedo thing I thought was cooler. Like, I like that part of the movie. They brought in an obsolete U.S. Navy submarine and then blew it up in the spot where the Red October was supposed to have exploded in order to provide wreckage that will convince the Soviets that their boat is definitely destroyed. So, you know, the end result is the same. But there's just a few details that are different. To me, it's the missing characters and the slightly less deep character development that's really kind of glaring to me that I'm like, oh, I wish they would have put that in the film. You know, the rest of the techno babble that I'm sure is in the film that is going to give everyone that's into, you know, military technology and all that a hard on to read the book. Like, cool, but you don't have to have that in the movie. So I thought the movie did a good job, though, of I mean, maybe this is a part of the oversimplification, but It does a good job of explaining the various technologies that are at play in the plot so that a layperson who is not a sonar expert or a submarine pedant would be able to just watch it, understand what's going on and enjoy those details are, I think, where the nuances rather in plot or character in this movie. Yeah. And yeah, again, I'm going to very purposefully not go through all of the goofs on when sonar is mentioned, what it's capable of and what it's not capable of, because it's just too much stuff to go through. You can read it for yourself. And it is interesting to talk about the real technology, all of the passive sonar that is like laying at the bottom of the ocean and that all kinds of sides are putting in the ocean just to try and detect passing by submarines and what those different pieces of equipment are and are not capable 
example of. All that stuff's interesting to read. I don't think it makes for interesting conversation, so I'm not going to bring it up here. But not all all of that stuff depicted in the film is accurate, but it works to keep the kind of thriller pacing going. I think a good glaring example is, not to kind of jump out of order, but you know the whole thing of turning around and heading directly for the torpedo by closing the distance faster and getting to the torpedo before it's armed. I think they started at like 8,000 yards. I'm like, okay. I Combat didn't- tactics, Mr. Ryan. <laughs> I don't know what the actual arming distance of a Russian submarine at that time was, but I'm pretty sure it's not, you know, 4,000 yards or whatever it was. Like, I'm like the way it goes on, it's going on for like five minutes. I'm like, okay, that torpedo would definitely be armed by now. Right. But there are little things like that. One of the things that gives this film a reputation for having a lot of access to military secrets is one of these plot points, the descriptions of the technology and all of this. So Clancy was huge into military tech. He had written for the U.S. Navy's like publishing arm before and interviewed a lot of submariners. And he was a total nerd for this stuff. It's long been considered that being able to measure the gravity that's around you when you are navigating a sub is probably going to be the most accurate way to do it rather than sonar, because if you can measure the gravity in your ship, you don't have to send out a ping so everybody knows where you are. And so when Clancy wrote The Hunt for Red October, he thought up because this this is the sub is absolutely not a real thing. This technology did not exist. You're talking about the Caterpillar Drive. The Caterpillar Drive and and this specific thing where they mention this isn't on the Red October, this is mentioned in the USS Dallas, which was also a creation of Clancy's, that they have various, and I don't know if this is how you pronounce this, milegal anomalies, which is the technological term for gravity stuff. I don't know the specifics. I don't do physics. But that had been a long top secret effort by the U.S. military to invent this exact thing that he's talking about. And he goes into great detail in the book and how it works. But that was years before it. And it is not how the actual device works. It's just that he had predicted that the U.S. military was going to develop a gravity measuring device in order to better navigate underwater without revealing location. And so they reference that in the movie. And then a few months after the movie was released, the U.S. military declassified that they did indeed have this technology. Not what was in the book, but similar technology. Related to it. Fulfills the same purpose, but does it in an entirely different way is from what I could understand anyway. Don't worry. Someone's going to come out in the group and tell us all about exactly <laughs> what exactly you're talking about. I am about. sure if I fucked anything up, my apologies again. This is I read a, a few different things about this, and this is my summation of that gleaned knowledge. Yeah, it has something to do with magnetism, maybe more than actual gravity. But again, someone will explain it to us. Yeah, I mean, one of the pieces of trivia says that some members of Congress contacted the CIA after the novel came out and they were like, how did the Russians get this technology before us? And they were like, they don't. What are you talking about? But we've all seen congressional inquiries on Facebook and we've seen how much Congress knows about technology and just about how social media works, let alone yeah. you know, propulsion systems. So pretty clear that congressmen would not know what the hell is going on in the CIA. Yeah, and that also feeds into, this is one of those, I have no idea how true it is. I don't 
know because it's just one of those things that somebody said to me 15 to 20 years ago that just stuck in my head because people just pour shit in my ears all the time and then it's impossible to get out <laughs> but it's it just somebody told me that oh well you know when the hunt for red october came out the military had like they went through and redacted a bunch of stuff because it was stuff that tom clancy wasn't even supposed to have access to that's how well researched this book was how accurate is that statement no. full fabrication is that like a little bit no no all of the information that tom clancy pulled from was generally available info it's just the group that published this book was the publishing arm of the u.s navy so when he submitted the novel to them because he'd written for them previously about this specific technology or whatever and they sent it back and said take out these hundred some pages of technical details right because he read all of this information and then was able to kind of synthesize it into a much more readable format than right. going through and reading technical manuals so they're like this is, this is too much and i would i would guess that it it may be partially that but also because they were trying to get into fiction they had never published fiction before this mm -hmm. was the first fiction book that they published and they were like I, I assume at least one editor looked at it and was like okay some people will be into this but let's maybe <laughs> tone it down a lot because too much my dude too much yeah I think what Katie said makes sense it's not so much that he was trying to publish anything that was confidential or secret it's more that it was kind of buried in technical manuals and they didn't necessarily want to just spread it out to the public in something that they predicted correctly was going to be a popular book and that the general public was going to have way more access to or, or was more readily available. Right. It's like, you know, the di the info is in the diagrams, but it's knowing, oh, this little spot right here, if you shoot this with your right. with your laser cannon in Star Wars, then the whole Death Star blows up type thing <laughs> where you don't want to advertise. Yeah. It's the exhaust port that's ray shielded. So you have to use proton torpedoes. Exactly. You know, it's like the exhaust port is out there. We just don't want to circle it and photocopy it for the public because then everybody's going to know. Yes, exactly. It didn't dawn on me until we started having this conversation and someone who's read more of Tom Clancy will have to speak up. But it kind of feels like Jack Ryan's a bit of a surrogate for Tom Clancy. It's called a self-insert. I think a lot of these writers of this kind of genre did mm -hmm. that it wasn't like john grisham a lawyer and then before he started right, writing legal yeah. fiction and dan brown was a douchebag before he started writing douchebag <laughs> fiction <laughs> yeah tom clancy like wanted to be in the military but he was he, not in the military well he was rejected so he tried to right. get into the military i, I forget Poor what eyesight. physical oh eyesight yeah so i yeah and jack ryan is kind of like he's played off as a civilian in this i mean he's a civilian at, at the character's a civilian at the time of the story, but he had been a Marine. So like he actually did go into the military and then had gotten out. So yeah, it definitely feels a little bit of surrogate Tom Clancy character in there. Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys, <laughs> you guys watch 30 rock or have you seen it? Yes. <laughs> okay. I never watched it. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. It's a hilarious show. And Alec Baldwin's character in there, he's like, I can't remember if he's the head of the whole studio or if he's just the head of this department. He's the head of the studio. Thank you. Okay. So he's the head of the studio and he plays like a super Reagan. He just has a hard on for Reagan. Like he literally coins the term Reaganing. Making it through a full 24 hours without a single misstep is called Reaganing. The only other people who've ever done it, Lee Iacocca, Jack Welsh, and no judgment. Saddam Hussein. <laughs> but uh, he's this hilarious anti-liberal character. 
And um, there is is a little clip. I'll, I'll I'll try and put the YouTube link in here or in the notes where uh, they have like an HD camera on the set for the first time. And as each character on the show just happens to pass in front of the camera, it's doing all these horrendous things. Like Liz Lemon all of a sudden has all these warts and like hair in between her eyes, like all this stuff that makes her just look horrible. And uh, the page walks through and he's like a Muppet, like literally (laughs) when Alec Baldwin accidentally walks through the path of the camera, they superimpose a few seconds of him from red October. in this as like a super hot young man. He's the only one that the camera makes look way better. It was hot hilarious i had to look it up i was like that is amazing (laughs) so interesting though so this movie politically while we're talking about rah rah reagan this movie is is interesting in a in a political sense katie you had said that you know it did get some reviews for its jingoistic militarism oh yes the rolling stone review by peter travers was quite critical because because they made the communists look bad is that what (laughs) no no. <laughs> this might be a, a, a McTiernan thing that, you know, seems simple enough now, but in the late 80s and early 90s, this might be a little bit more of a comment on Die Hard, but it was a, a, a interesting thing that I noticed in this one as well. The really smart technical guy who's into classical music is the black guy. Mm-hmm. Courtney B. Vance, he's my favorite performer in this. He's fantastic, and I love the character of Jonesy, but it also reminds me of, in Die Hard, same thing. The the one who's really good with the computers and is smarter than everybody else in the room is the black guy, and the team in Die Hard is very multicultural, and none of them play into... Nobody has played as a trope for laughs in a McTiernan movie I've found. Yeah. I found this to be the case really in predator. I found it to be the case in die hard. It's the case in the hunt for red October that nobody is the butt of a joke for an established stereotype from either their ethnicity or their race or their gender or what have you. Mm-hmm. It's just not something that you see that I, I haven't seen that in a McTiernan movie. And I just had to take a minute before we start talking about how militaristic this movie is and its ramifications in the real world to just appreciate John McTiernan for this weird little anomaly that I've noticed. And the way it portrays the Russians, that's also something interesting that comes from the Clancy novel. The Russians are not portrayed as, you know, the bad guys, evil. They have some nuance and some depth and there are good ones and bad ones. And so it's interesting that it has a little bit more depth and then came to represent not that very much not that in (laughs) pop culture. It became a very and was seen at the time as a very jingoistic movie because, you know, all of the Americans are straight up good guys with, you know, nice sharp chins and except for Scott Glenn. Yes. His chin is just not very sharp. He's not. It is not. But he's got that uh, weathered look to him. Oh, he's a good looking man, though. Come on. He's got a very workman, workman like kind of. I can only think of him as Jack Crawford, which is the next role that he had after this in Mm -hmm. Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, it's interesting when you bring up diversity, especially in the 80s and 90s, that I feel like if there's a spectrum of this, of 
directors who just did not give a shit and were not thinking about it. And most of their films are just straight up white people or all white dudes because it's like, whatever, that's who showed up at the audition and et cetera, et cetera, to the more modern approach of like actively trying to have diversity and trying to give people a shot who like traditionally have not gotten a shot in film. I feel like McTiernan is just in this sweet spot and I haven't heard him talk about it, so I don't know how he feels about it, but I feel like it's sort of the way you want diversity to be, meaning it's no one trying to make themselves look good or to be like, hey, look how not racist I am. I have one of everything in my movies. It just seems like a lot of his movies have a really diverse cast and they're all excellent fucking actors. It's almost that sort of. I don't want to say like race neutralizing approach, but you get what I'm saying. Like it, yeah. it's sort of like he doesn't really care and he's just putting these people in whatever position they fit in. There's James Earl Jones as an admiral and there's this guy as an experienced sonar technician, like whatever. It's just like, yeah, they're good at their job and they're good actors and that's what they're doing. And I don't know. There's just something I love about that because it's not attracting attention to it and it's not attention seeking. It just is and, and it, it was rare for the time for the yes, time scary. period like the the biggest example i can think of this is in die hard when you have one of the terrorist criminal henchmen is an asian character mm -hmm. any other 80s director would have had that guy do a, some kind of martial arts stunt right mm -hmm. this guy just eats candy bars <laughs> yeah there's always one who eats candy bars i swear to god and he's looking at him he's tempted by the candy bars and he grabs a candy bar and they're sitting there eating it it's like that and a machine gun that's the only thing this guy does the whole movie and literally anybody else would have had him doing kung fu or something yeah i mean i i, I gotta give my usual my my uh routine shout out to James Cameron. James Cameron's like just a step below where it's like he generally tends to have some decent diversity in his films, but sometimes the Middle Eastern guy is definitely the tropey terrorist. And it's like, okay, James Cameron, you almost made it. Yeah. <laughs> Are we ready for my Scott Glenn story? Yeah, always. Pittsburgh native Scott Glenn. Oh, Ooh, I did not know that. Let me take you back for a minute. So I was a senior in high school when myself and it was just happened to be this way myself and like three of my friends got golf clubs for christmas <laughs> I my, our parents did not coordinate this but just all of a sudden we had golf clubs was golf just like a big thing no well i mean golf is pretty bigger around here uh, oh, there's okay. some there's some fairly nice courses and things like that and fairly accessible a lot of driving ranges and and what have you and it was just something for us to you know do outside keep you busy yeah i've been golfing twice in my life but i still have these clubs <laughs> but uh so when the weather turned nice you know we were like hey we've got these clubs maybe we should go golfing so like me and two of my friends we went out to the to the mount lebanon country club golf course you know and we just went out there and we're like hey we'd, we're here we'd like to play some golf please it's like a saturday late morning it's crowded as hell we have no idea what we're doing we just did not get a tea time i take no, it we're just these three dickhead kids who were like oh we have golf clubs we can show up so we did just about to piss everybody off absolutely and so we we showed up and they were like "Ooh, yeah like checking their watches they're like i mean yeah no we can get you in um but you know what? It's really crowded. Is it okay with you if we like put a fourth with you just to keep things moving? And we're like, yeah, I mean, it's more, is it okay with this guy? Cause right. we've never been golfing before. 
this is going to be a long day for him. Uh, and they were like, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. And they put us with motherfucking Scott Glenn. You got to be fucking kidding me. How have you never told us this story before? This is insane. <laughs> no fucking way, man. We're golfing with Scott Glenn. Wait, what year is this? This would have been 99. Okay. The summer of 2000, like somewhere, summer 99, summer 2000, somewhere in, in that ballpark. Okay. So this is like height of Silver Fox, Scott Glenn. Mm-hmm. Never introduced himself when we didn't be like, oh my God, Scott Glenn. We were just like, holy fuck, it's Scott Glenn. We could not believe that we were golfing with Jack Crawford. Super nice guy, by the way, was very helpful and patient with us and was like giving us tips and like, oh, try using this club and not that club. What? It's amazing. Really nice guy. And then like we got halfway through the front. Now we were just going to play nine holes. We just got halfway through and he was like, hey, I have a thing I have to be at. Is it OK with you guys if uh, if I just go ahead and play through? And I was like, yeah, no, absolutely. By all means, it was thank you. It was a great day. It's like, hey, nice meeting you guys. Like, took off. But yeah, that's my Scott Glenn story. Is I just randomly went golfing with Scott Glenn one of the two times in my life I've ever been golfing. That's amazing. Wow. And you guys, for especially for uh, young kids, you didn't throw him one question about movies or anything, huh? Not a fucking thing. We were just like, this guy is here golfing. You respected his anonymity. Absolutely. He that's didn't say nice anything. We weren't saying anything. Just... And I went home and I was like, I told my dad, I was like, I think I went golfing with Scott Glenn today. <laughs> and he was like, oh, yeah, he's from Pittsburgh. And I was like, I didn't even know that. So it was even weirder to us because we didn't know Scott Glenn was from oh. Pittsburgh. And he just showed up at our golf course. And we were like, why are you here, Scott Glenn? I imagine if there's an example to the contrary, Liam's going to bring it up. But I feel like people from Pittsburgh who make it are generally like, pretty nice especially when they go back to pittsburgh and hang out with the rubes you know they're just kind of like oh hey yeah no big deal if they come back no there's there's some very like down-to-earth blue-collar mentality of people who like came from right. pittsburgh made it like michael keaton mm. mm-hmm. weird ass michael keaton he is a strange dude but like when you hear him talk you're like oh no that's just a regular man uh jeff goldblum is from Pittsburgh, and when you hear him talk about it, it's very Jeff Goldblum-y, but it's also very sweet and endearing. Yeah, it seems like even if you weren't a blue-collar worker, it's highly likely that your family was, or most mm -hmm. of your friends, like, you're gonna know a lot of people that are just down-to-earth people like that, so, yeah, very cool. Alright, it's time to give a shout-out to our researchers, Mike D., our Cold War expert who came through for us, and brought up a few great points. It, it also always looks like Mike is just pulling this stuff directly out of his brain. Uh, he never has references because I'm like, I think Mike just has this stuff just sitting around his head and he can just write about ICBMs because that's just who Mike is. So he, <laughs> at the front end of Mike's research, he talks about a sail versus a conning tower and how he's like, you need to acknowledge this or the sub pet ants are going to come after you guys. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that. So a conning tower is an old term used for the vertical structure at the top of the sub that houses the periscope and, you know, a bunch of other equipment. That's where the people can stand on the thing. The people can stand on the thing. You can get a better view if you are on the surface. All that stuff in later subtechnology was basically moved into the main pressurized hull. So it's no, it's not a modern term to call that a conning tower anymore. They just call it a sail. 
as a nautical term, even though it clearly has nothing to do with actual sails. So now it's called a sail, and that's modern subterminology. Pedants come at me. That's my best attempt to make sense of that. Uh, Mike talks a little bit about the nuclear triad, which was something that was very front and center in everyone's mind at this time during the Cold War. Again, this is all going to go in our surplus ordinance, so the research is not wasted. You can go read it for yourself later. But basically, long-range bombers, ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles that were actually you know, in silos in the ground or on trucks, and SLBMs, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, make up the nuclear triad. At the time, this is what the big players had that could launch nuclear weapons mostly around the world. In fact, it's kind of funny. One of the main sort of plot holes in this movie is that there's constant reference to like, oh, how close does the Red October need to get before it can launch its ICBMs? And they're like, oh, it's going to be in range within 48 hours. There's all these references to it. In reality, this sub could have never left port and launched ICBMs up to like 8,000 kilometers away. So (laughs) there's really no sense to that, but it's just to kind of up the ante and up the thriller aspect of it. He talks a little bit about finding nuclear subs and about how much excess waste heat nuclear submarines are releasing all the time, whether the engines are on or not. And you have to run pumps to cool that. So actually, it's a lot harder to keep nuclear subs quiet as it is to keep attack subs quiet. Like the Dallas is an attack sub in this case. Mm -hmm. One of Mike's big problems with the movie is that They didn't really need to invest in a new propulsion system for their boomers, quote unquote. Boomers are these nuclear launch capable submarines. It would have made more sense for them to invest that technology in their attack subs, which are faster and are basically trying to hunt down other subs the way we saw in the film. If you want to get some of Mike's research, we'll put that up later. Ali Pitts, our longtime correspondent, who is a Russia expert. He's from the UK, but he spent a lot of time in Russia reading and writing about Russia. He brought up the term Ryan explaining this, which I thought was funny because uh, <laughs> Jack Ryan is in the middle of this briefing room explaining why the Red October is called Red October and making reference to the two 1917 revolutions in Russia, which is like, you know, right. shit, everybody in here is going to know what the hell you're talking about. And, uh, <laughs> and he then goes on to enlighten a flight attendant on the mysteries of turbulence, which I was like, right. wow, you are a fucking um, dickhead. Which Well, maybe try to get some sleep anyway, sweetie. Man, he doesn't come off as a dick for the rest of the movie for the most part. Uh, just an expert, but not like necessarily a know-it-all, but man, he did not. I feel like Aaron Sorkin did a dialogue polish on just that scene. Right? <laughs> I know. As soon as I saw that John Millius. Who only rewrote Sean Connery's dialogue, by the way. And the Russian, from what I read. Yep, and the Russian stuff. Oh, by the way, in terms of the writers, we basically have, so clearly Tom Clancy wrote the novel. We have Larry Ferguson and Donald Stewart doing the screenplay. Uncredited, it listed John Milius, Robert Garland, and David Shaber. Yeah, they all must have done rewrites of the script. Allie also points out the tea spillages in this movie, because <laughs> as a British citizen, spilling tea is a very big deal. And so he made a point to talk about that and what kind of vessel you know, To Gen in. Z, spilling the tea is also a big deal. <laughs> I guess it is. So. It is. He talks a little bit about the singing, which I noticed in the trivia, apparently only... Apparently only 0.1% of airborne noise radiates outside of a sub. So the whole 
sonar tech being able to hear them singing is kind of fictitious jonesy special he is he's very anybody special else would have missed it apparently mm-hmm. <laughs> i thought the whole montana bit was hilarious how sam neill's character is talking about do you think they would let me live in montana and then he shot jurassic park three years later where it opens up with him at a dinosaur dig in Montana. I was like, That's oh, look, he, he got to be in Montana. Yay. <laughs> Yay, Sam Neill. But what's interesting about this, and I didn't know this, this was news to me, was he talks about whether he would be allowed to go from Montana to Arizona. And I feel like for people who don't know about the old Soviet Union, you're like, yeah, no shit, you can go from Montana to Arizona. Like, what is that even a reference to? What this statement reflects is the fact that in the Soviet Union, restrictions on citizens' freedom of movement were not limited to travel outside the country. Movement within the borders of the USSR was also strictly controlled, and all citizens were obliged to carry a rather paradoxical-sounding internal passport. So that's what Sam Neill's character is referencing. So thanks, Allie, for those points. Lastly, Rich Stevens, our returning research champion, He wrote out a great glossary of terms, uh, including SSBNs and the difference between boomers and fast attack and how sonar works and all that stuff. So again, we will put this in our surplus ordinance and you can read up on it for yourself. I want to make sure we talk about the special effects on this because yes, mixed bag very much of their time. There's a little bit of CGI, but most of it is models. You can tell some of the more egregious CGI, but the vast majority of the CGI that's in it is used to like add little details to the model shots. But there are a couple scenes that I was just like, why would you make this choice? And the biggest one is that end scene where Jack Ryan and Ramius are, they're uh, like looking over the top of the submarine as they're going into the Penobscot in, in Maine. You get an outside shot and then you just kind of see them where their heads are hovering over the water. And there's more than one point where you can tell that Alec Baldwin's head is is pretty see-through. Yeah, the blue screen effect was pretty bad on that. (laughs) Oh, it's just, um, it's not well done. And to have that at the end of the movie, it's like, all right, and here's our final moments. It was just so painful to watch. Like, oh, you couldn't. It seemed like one of those, they just ran out of budget. Not like they didn't have the technology. That's what it felt like. It's like you couldn't have maybe chosen I, I mean they did have a lot of help from the u.s military when they made this you know they oh, used yeah. lots of navy subs and i think there were two or three that were involved in the filming of this there were most of the seamen that you see on board are actual navy sailors a lot of them yeah that they kind of took on leave because it was easier to hire them than it was to train actors on how to act on a submarine which makes sense because there's not a lot of space and even though they didn't do a lot of filming on the sub most of it was done on sets it's still very cramped and hard to maneuver so i can see why they made that choice but yeah there was just some of those effects are a little too obvious and again this was made in 1989 so i've I've got some patience but i didn't have a problem with the special effects until the bad mat work in the last scene when they're up on the sail. Would that be a sail, Dan? Did I say it right? I believe they are up on the sail, generally speaking. Yeah, yes. not the, not the, what was the other word for conning it? Conning tower. Con- yeah. Conning mm-hmm. tower. Yeah, when they're up on the sail or conning tower, whatever. <laughs> I'll say both ways and make everybody happy and mad. The, the thing that pops out the top. Tippy top thing. Yeah. 
man, that mat work is so bad. Painful. It's not even like blue screen. It's just, I think they literally just mat cut them around. It's not rear projection. It's not, it's just mat cutting and it looks fucking terrible. And it's supposed to be this big end moment between their relationship. And I swear to God, it and the dialogue in that scene is also terrible. I swear, I was I was just waiting for Sean Connery to be like, "Would you like to go fishing?" <laughs> Would you go fishing with me, Sean Connery? No, no. Sean Connery is the one who has to ask because he's the one we've seen say that fishing was very important to him, and that that's the only thing that he really wants to get out of this new life. I just love that Katie said that in the most Irish fucking accent ever. That shit is I did great. on on purpose. <laughs> on purpose. Not even Scottish. No, I cannot. Definitely I cannot. not. <laughs> Yeah, so I never saw Lucas's name plastered all over any of this, but ILM did a ton of these effects, which is Lucas's company. So clearly he had his dirty little paw in this. I mean, the miniature work, a lot of it is fairly well done because miniatures, boat miniatures and using water in miniatures is notoriously difficult because it just always looks like a miniature. Right. Well, the trick here is I think they combine, again, minus the obvious fails like the mat at the end, they combined different technologies in just the right kind of way here. So the miniatures of the subs, which apparently the Red October, they only built the left side in like a ton of details. So depending on which direction (laughs) it's going, it's either the detailed side or it's a mirror image of the detailed side when it needs to head the other direction. Mm. But basically that was a model hanging from six or 12 different wires and what they did with the computers is they added all the particulate and water effects to make it look like it was in the water but then all the movement of the sub is essentially real it's a model but there's no actual water in there and so that's partially how they got away with making water look good although i think when you're mentioning how it's easy to make water look bad with models we're talking more about models on the surface and we've talked about this in a lot of other episodes like Bojest and other episodes where it's just like the size of ripples compare you know if you're talking about a 12 inch boat model versus a real ship the ripples are just going to be way too big and you can tell that there's a scale issue there so the The fact that everything, most things here are happening underwater is helping them out a lot. And the other thing is when they're doing the real big stuff, the DOD is like, okay, here's an actual sub that you can use. And so the Houston, which I think was the stand in for the Dallas, that uh, rapid surfacing that they're doing, I don't remember the official term for that, but that's a real thing the submarines can do. They did like 40 of those to get the big Mm -hmm. shot at the end where it surfaces the free willy moment Uh (laughs) uh-huh yeah so you know again how do you get something to look real just do it for real which is easier said than done and i didn't see anything about financial transactions between the production and the navy so i don't know how much like whether the navy got paid i think they just knew that there was going to be good press for okay okay Yeah, this was considered a big recruiting effort because, like I said, the book was published by the Navy. Right. And a lot of admirals and Navy personnel had read this. And so just like uh, I saw references made to how Top Gun really helped uh, Air Force enrollment. No, because Top Gun was Navy. I know what you're trying to say. I think the way to say it is Top Gun helped naval aviation enrollment they were hoping this would do the same thing for naval submarine enrollment yes that's it they were really trying to get more submariners on board which i gotta say is like the coolest job title and definitely at that time was volunteer only 
so yeah getting volunteers yeah. to want to be on subs which oftentimes is kind of a shitty job or at least you know it's like being in prison it's hard it's hard you know you're yeah, and you're you're underway for six months sometimes i want to be on a sub except i wouldn't fit in them <laughs> if it's like hey you never have to look at sunlight again like oh wow sign me up however the beds are only five feet long oh oh <laughs> and you are in a tin can all the time you're six five and 330 pounds you don't fit in this machine anymore i'm like oh all right yeah, I, I don't i don't think the uh stairwells are designed for you in mind not that they let a lot of 330 pound dudes into the military in the first right. place let's be real but <laughs> i'm sure they'd have words for me except for thornson in the uh, russian navy <laughs> that dude's got to be 300 pounds at least god could you imagine walking around as that guy right just hunched over trying to manipulate yourself before we get too far along and keep going in the episode i wanted to mention first of all we're in the middle of one of our series which we do every few rounds of groups of films we try and do a theme series so we may have forgotten to mention it at the beginning of mr roberts but we're doing a naval series everybody so we're picking naval themed films for the next four with the exception of one that we're throwing in the middle, which we're not going to spoil quite yet, but it's because it is going to be a current release. And so we're trying to be better about covering films that have come out recently. So you will find out about that one next episode. But while we're talking about the Navy, and I know we have a lot of listeners like Jim Randall, who were in the actual Navy. He did some of the uh, PRB stuff for us because uh, he served on a PRB in Vietnam. So he did some of that for Apocalypse Now. I haven't mentioned Navy rates before. We've talked about Navy rank structure because the Navy's kind of stands out on its own, especially the officers. But in general, you know, you can compare. We've talked about this Army, Air Force, Marine Corps, Lieutenant, Captain, Colonel. All those ranks are basically equivalent and they fit the same O slot for the most part. Enlisted, there are a few differences, but the Navy is really weird and different. And one of the things we haven't talked about yet is Navy rates. So you do have a pay grade or a rank in the Navy. If you're enlisted, it starts at E1, the same way you would as a private or, you know, in any other um, service. And then, you know, you go up. So you start off as a seaman and then I think you're an apprentice. Anyways, it, it continues on from there. Once you get into your NCO rank, so non-commissioned officers, which in the Navy is called a petty officer, you have third class, second class, first class ascending. But in the Navy, you also have a rate, which is what most other services refer to as your MOS, your military occupational specialty. So Jonesy in this is a sonar technician. So that's the job that he trained for. He went to what's called an A school for it and possibly a, a C school for it as well before he even got deployed and got onto a ship, right? So he had to do a bunch of training to learn how sonar works. The movie fails to give him an upper arm patch on his uniform, but normally in the Navy dungarees, between the Eagle and the Chevrons that indicate his rank, he's a second class, so he would have two stripes uh, under that Eagle. He would also have the symbol of his rate, for example, for a sonar technician, it's a pair of cans that represent headphones. And most of the time, now this could vary a little bit in different communities, but most of the time, like he would not have been called Seaman Jones because Seaman is a lower, it's an actual rank. Mm -hmm. And so he would have been called either Petty Officer, Petty Officer Second Class, if you like really want to lay out the entire title, or most likely ST2 Jones sonar technician second class and i remember that from my training at uh, the 
aviation academy that I went to in the Marine Corps because it's Navy Marine Corps. We worked together and there was tons of ACs there. The ACs are air controllers. So they're air traffic controllers in the Navy. And then you would call them by whatever petty officer rank they were. So AC3, AC2, AC1 were most of them, uh, which was a petty officer first class, but he was an air controller. And so you went with AC and that was kind of standard. So those are Navy rates and most sailors as far as I know, I wasn't in the Navy, refer to each other by their rate. And then after that, you get into the chiefs. And again, we talked about that last episode where you would just call them chief. So Jonesy is a great character, but calling him seaman is a little bit... That's busting him down a few. It's busting him down a few, you know, so... So I have to make a correction here. I misspoke slightly about Navy rank versus rate versus rating. The use of the word rank for Navy enlisted personnel is incorrect as the word rank is only used for officers. The enlisted term in the Navy is rate. The rating badge is a combination of rate, which is pay grade as indicated by the chevrons, so E1, E2, E3, and petty officers and chiefs as I described, and rating, which is your occupational specialty or MOS and the other services, as indicated by the symbol just above the chevrons, like the Jonesy example where his rating, not his rate, is sonar technician. I know, it's confusing. Just wanted to set the record straight, especially for all our listeners in the Navy. So, Jonesy's definitely my favorite character, I think, in this. And partially that's because Courtney B. Vance is just such a great actor. Like He's so good at portraying uh, intensity, and Jonesy's so obviously an intense character. Like, he's very invested in what he's doing, and he is dedicated, and he is going to find that sub. Clearly super competent. I just always remember the Paganini conversation. Oh, that was good. Yes. Oh, that's so wonderful. The Paganini versus Pavarotti. Yes. It was Paganini. Th- this is my story. Okay. Tell it right, cop. Pavarotti is a tenor. Paganini was a composer. He's uh, just so fun to watch. And I loved the fact that at the end, John McTiernan is great for stuff like this, where at the end, they kind of gather together all of our main characters. And that's who goes over to the sub to meet to meet up with all the hot dudes. Right. <laughs> right. We're just going to have Jack Ryan and this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. We'll just bring them all together. It'll be fun. All it's the like- hot dudes like Scott Glenn. Yes. Hey, I think he's hot, but whatever. That man was carved from an oak tree with buckshot. (laughs) Yeah, which is a a certain look that I I can appreciate. How dare you? How dare you? That's a compliment. How dare you, (laughs) sir? (laughs) But I think the acting in this is really what makes the movie, I think, because... I can see, as we've talked about, how the book is a lot more nuanced, um, more captivating for those who are interested in the technical details. In military techno porn. Right, right. And and the dialogue would be more palatable in a book because it's spread out a little more. <laughs> in this, the dialogue is really made by the acting. And Courtney B. Vance is, like I said, my favorite. But I think... Sam Neill is also doing a fantastic job in this. He's the only one whose Russian accent I kind of buy. And this was the only thing I didn't see coming was his death. Oh. Oh, I did. As soon as he started talking about wanting to go to Montana. Exactly. As soon as he talked about the... <laughs> you should have seen... You should have known it from there. Exactly. The proverbial girl back home where he said, you know, I want to get a wife or... Ed, what is it? Actually, I think I will need two wives. Oh, at least... I was like, yes, Sam Neill, you do need two wives. 
If only he had known that this whole conversation would have secured him a spot in Jurassic Park. So it's funny that you mentioned that because uh, I was reading in the trivia that Alec Baldwin got this part because Harrison Ford initially turned it down. Like they wanted Harrison Ford to play Jack Ryan. He turned it down. He he then famously went on to play Jack Ryan in the subsequent films. But then Sam Neill got Jurassic Park because Harrison Ford turned that down. Oh, right. Oh, that's a good thing. Man, the careers that Harrison Ford made by just turning jobs down. Yeah, that's I mean, that's why Alan Grant dresses like Indiana Jones. Oh, right. I love Harrison Ford, but Sam Neill was the better pick for that. And I think he's fun in this. I always forget that he's from New Zealand. And like when I was watching this, it was a prominent reminder because I was like, oh, he's well, he's Irish, but he that's where he lives and maintains a residence and has for the vast majority of his life. Oh, and he totally has a Kiwi accent when you hear him talk. He does. He does. Yeah, and it's funny because you hear his Irish accent in Peaky Blinders, and it's the weirdest fucking Irish accent I've ever heard in my life. Because it's tinged <laughs> with the New Zealand now, and Australian, because he spent, I think, he spent time a lot of time in his younger years in Australia, and then eventually moved to New Zealand, and that's where he maintains his residence at, with all of his adorable pigs. His, his Twitter account is uh, a joy in a cesspit. <laughs> I, I will say that. You get to see lots of pictures of cute pigs. Yeah, I don't know if it's fair to say, or I don't know if it's accurate to say that he had the best Russian accent, but I think maybe his charisma and acting sells his Russian accent the best. Maybe that's the best way to put it, but I'm no expert. Of the of the officers, I think. Okay. Yeah, there's that old diplomat who's the who's the Russian in everything from the Mighty Ducks to the Hunt for Red October. Personally, you know what I, I thought of him as is, uh, to me, that guy is always and forever diplomatic immunity guy. Who are we talking about? The Russian ambassador. Oh, Andre. In Lethal Weapon 2, he's like the main bad guy. And at the very end, when it's all going to shit, he's about to die. And he goes, diplomatic community. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have more on the acting, Katie? Are there other? Yes, we do. Because we have not talked about my guy, Tim Curry. I'm always happy to see Tim Curry. Me too. And he's so cute in this. It makes me a little sad because Tim Curry has two modes. Iconic over-the-top horror monster (laughs) and sniveling toady. Okay. And as he went on, he got a lot more sniveling toady. Like what no, I You have you have you have Rocky Horror, iconic. Right. Absolutely beautiful. That man drips charisma. All the mm, time. And sex appeal. And sex appeal. Legend. Mm-hmm. Where he's unrecognizable. Pennywise the clown. Mm-hmm. And then you get him as like the concierge in Home Alone 2 and the wimpy doctor in Hunt for Red October. I'm sorry. Clue? Yeah, I was going to say, what about Clue? Clue straddles that line. He is nobody's toady in Clue. <sighs> but he's sniveling. I don't Yes, he is. He has some sniveling moments in Clue. He doesn't suck up to anybody. He's the one with all the tricks up his sleeve. Come on now. Let's not do Tim Curry dirty. No, I'm not trying to do Tim Curry dirty. I'm saying I don't like seeing him in the sniveling toady roles. The shadow sniveling toady. He's too sexy for that. He deserves better. I know. And I want to see more Rocky Horror Tim Curry, where he's just owning every moment of screen time with like every inch of his being. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know how uh, 
sometimes you can not get a job because you're overqualified. Like that can actually yes. happen where they're like, you know what? It's too like we can't even pay you. I have had that happen to me. I feel like this is the case with the casting of Tim Curry. And this again, love to see him on the screen. Love Tim Curry. But I feel like there's not enough to this character for Tim Curry to really sink his teeth into. I'm like, there are 50 other actors who would have cost half as much that would have done just fine with this. See, I think he adds kind of just a like he's the salt to the dish in this because he is the only actor who I wasn't entirely sure of their um, allegiance. Yes. I was like, is he maybe I'm wrong and it's not this assistant cook. Maybe it is Tim Curry mm. as the doctor who's who's secretly, you know, that would have been the more. That's because you've seen Clue. <laughs> yes, but it would have been the more John LeCare way to go go about things, I think, for those who enjoy his work. But I love at the end, he does get to have his little moment of like, oh, it's the captain, the captain. He's the one kind of inciting this mythology that they're building around what's actually happening underwater, even though they can't see it. Yeah. Oh, right. When he's like. The captain scuttling the ship and all the sailors are like, oh, the captain's a hero, you know, like that whole thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. He's kind of leading the charge in that. And that works pretty well for me that he at least gets that little nod. But I I agree, Liam. I don't like it when Tim Curry. He's great at sniveling, but mm mm-mm. I, I love seeing him. He does it so well, but I'm like, he does other things well, too. He can be yeah. a horrible murder clown. Oh, God. Terrifying. Terrifying. He's just has such range. And I feel like what most people think of him as a lot of times, if they haven't seen his more oftentimes horror themed performances, I think a lot of times people think of him as the concierge in Home Alone 2. Yeah. And similar roles. Yeah. I mean... Everybody knows who he is in it, but also his face is completely covered in that. So not not exactly the one role you want to represent you as an actor. I mean, yeah, th- there are a lot of parts in this that are played by some big actors who don't really have a big role. James Earl Jones, mostly just pushing buttons and being imposing AF on people. <laughs> <laughs> and using his gorgeous voice. No, you understand, Commander, that torpedo did not self-destruct. You heard it hit the hull, and I was never here. And you hear the Darth Vader voice, and you're like, yes, sir, Uh, you were not here. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Oh, speaking of which, I forgot to mention the veterans in this movie, which I try and point out when I have them. Yeah, Sean Connery served in the Royal Navy for a couple of years. He served on the HMS Formidable. Scott Glenn was in the Marine Corps for three years. I could not for the life of me find out what he did. Was he enlisted or off? Nothing. There's nothing online about it. So if you know, please let us know. Scott, Bubby, right into us. And James Earl Jones was in the Army. He served as, uh, I think he got up to first lieutenant, and he had a ranger pin. He graduated from ranger school. So James Earl Jones was a lot thinner at one point and kind of a badass. Still a badass. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. I have to ask this. The whole time when... The they never list his title, but Richard Jordan plays the national security advisor. So he is opposite the Russian ambassador. He's the guy eating the jelly beans, which I think is a subtle Reagan reference there. And then he's kind of in charge of the first briefing when Jack Ryan is giving the briefing about the Red October. When I'm not kissing babies, I'm stealing their lollipops. Oh, my God. That was. So he had some great lines. He's clearly a really gifted actor. And I spent. 30 minutes staring at him. I was like, where 
have I seen this guy before? I know I've mm-hmm. seen this guy. And then I was like, that's fucking James Mason. I know who that is. Yeah. <laughs> he was in North by Northwest and he was in, oh, he was in the Blue Max. And then I was like doing the math and I'm like, wait, he's literally the same age that James Mason was in like the late sixties. So clearly yeah. that's impossible because, so then I looked it up and of course it's not him. This is Richard Jordan and they are exactly 30 years apart. So he's 30 years younger than James Mason. But am I insane? Were you not getting some James Mason vibes from that guy? No, I could see it. Uh, he's he's not as slick and smooth as James Mason, but I think it's around his facial structure. But he looks a lot like him. Yeah, his facial structure is very similar. My husband asked me, he said, is that James Mason? Is it, there's no... Oh, yes. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not insane. There's no way that's James Mason. This is way, way too much age difference. He's way dead, I think, by 1990. He's got the spirit of James Mason. That sleazy... You know what I think? Uh, I think you're jealous. I mean, I'm very touched. I, you know, he strikes me as kind of a James Rebhorn sort of actor. Like you see him and everything, and he's always like kind of a conniving douchebag. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not to the extent that James Rebhorn was, rest in peace. But you know, he always plays like that kind of role. Usually, a a, a politician with no scruples. Mm, right. Yeah. I mean, again, that. <laughs> pretty clearly laid out in his dialogue in this not something that i would call subtle but some great lines right okay sean connery let's rate and we can talk about his acting too let's rate sean connery's hair in this we're just <laughs> one out of we're just out of five i must i'm gonna give him a straight up hot five i was like that hair piece is the shit it is blended perfectly it is cut perfectly i could not tell that he's bald that is a fucking hell of a hairpiece. Yeah, because we see his real hair in The Untouchables a few years earlier. Right. So, like, everybody mm-hmm. knows he's he's got a bald pate. Right, but he did have a rug for a long time. I think he was losing his hair pretty hard, even in the early Bond years, and just wore a rug. So, like, he's had a hairpiece in public. In the grand scheme of Sean Connery hairpieces... This is definitely up there. If you look at when he returned to Bond with Never Say Never Again, which was an off-brand remake of Thunderball. Oh, God. He's obviously older, and his hairpiece in it is atrocious. Mm -hmm. It is really bad. Okay. So, is this one a five for you? This one would have to be probably a... Yeah, five, maybe a 4.5, because I think The Rock is probably the most realistic looking one that I've seen. All right. All right. Yeah, that one is really good. Oh, and he has long hair at the beginning of The Rock. He has long hair (laughs) in the beginning of The Rock, gets a haircut, and even that haircut looks good. The Rock is peak Connery hairpiece. Katie, what's your rating? I would say probably a four, four and a half, like Liam. I could see like the, it's only the back that looks a little, like it's... It's a little poofy. Yeah, it's like oddly clipped and it sticks straight out in a weird way. Oh, see, I thought it was so well blended. I was watching the back of his head. The front of it looks perfect. And I think for me, that's definitely the hardest part to get right is that, is the the hairline. Mm -hmm. It was good enough. That I didn't really even think about the fact that it was a hairpiece. I was like, oh, yeah, that's fine. It's funny that you talk about his long hair in The Rock, because apparently Sean Connery has a thing or had a thing at this point for giving himself long hair. If you think about The Rock and The Medicine Man, 
where he was rocking that ponytail. He totally did. And Zardoz. Zardoz. I mean, God, that outfit. I haven't seen that, but I cannot wait. That outfit kind of takes center stage. You really forget about his hair. You're like, <laughs> I know you don't even, but you don't even notice the mustache or the hair. What kind of weird ass futuristic bikini are you wearing? For real. The murder braid of Zardoz. Why would you do this, sir? But I think you guys will appreciate this piece of IMDb trivia <laughs> regarding Sean Connery's hairpiece. After consulting with the wardrobe and makeup departments behind John McTiernan's back, Sir Sean Connery arrived on set for his first day of shoots with his hairpiece incorporating a ponytail. No! Oh, who did this to you? This is just not right. In fact, it's nasty. Well, it's a grunge thing. Well, it's some kind of thing. Several years later, once Connery's potential influence had greatly waned, McTiernan stated in an interview with Sight and Sound magazine that he was fucking livid with Connery and that the Scottish actor tried to use his considerable heft with the studio going over the director's head to pass the alteration with producers. <laughs> it seemed as though Connery was going to get his way until mid through the second day of shooting when the director of photography, Jan de Bont, started laughing while reviewing the dailies, remarking to Connery that his ponytail looked like, quote, a limp swinging dick. <laughs> there you go. This soon became a meme among the crew, and by the end of the second day, Connery was so upset at the mockery that he relented, having makeup remove the alteration and forcing the reshoot of a key scene. McTiernan joked that he reported the cost of the hairpiece, approximately $20,000, was mainly down to the cost of those subsequent reshoots, and that the hair scene in the final movie was merely, quote, a $10 bargain from the thrift shop. Oh my god! If that doesn't make it a five for you, I don't know what will, because I'm like, wait a minute, that was a cheap hairpiece? Like, that thing kicked ass. That is amazing, I love it. It, it definitely gets the award for most improved. <laughs> <laughs> so before we go too much further, I wanted to bring up, as I said in my uh, mission briefing, how this film really had a big effect on pop culture, and Tom Clancy books and media in general did, in that despite the multicultural casting and the for the time, semi-even-handed portrayal of the Russians as individuals throughout this, Clancy kind of came to represent something in the incredibly conservative side of things that led to some rich interpretation, I will say. And Hunt for Red October, for those who are familiar with um, the QAnon movement, was one of their movies in the same way the White Squall movie is. Particularly, they would refer to it in regards to uh, the Red October is coming and that someone was going to come in and defect in regards to positive events for Trump was kind of how Hunt for Red October comes into the QAnon movement. But there is definitely a heavy thread that runs through Tom Clancy's work in video games, movies, the books themselves that falls into that jingoistic conservative playbook that eventually did, I think, get manipulated. I don't know that Clancy himself, because he, Tom Clancy died in 2013 at 66, and he was a pretty wide 
ranging dude who, as far as I know, his interest was very much in the mechanics and the technological details and the realities of what it is to serve in the U.S. military and the CIA and all of that stuff. And it does feel a bit of co-opting, but I haven't read a whole lot of Clancy, so I can't say for certain. Well, and there are still Tom Clancy books coming out that other people are writing that are like Tom mm-hmm. Clancy's Splinter Cell is the video game version. Yeah, it's like Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six or whatever, you know, but there are books that are Tom Clancy's and then the title and then it's by right. somebody who is not Tom Clancy. Oh, yeah. He had a ghostwriter, right? Well, not even just ghostwriters. It's. Like you have people who are playing in the Tom Clancy sandbox now. Like you'll you'll see people who write Agatha Christie mysteries. You know, be like Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot in such and such a book by so and so a person. Or Bond novels are still. Or being- Sherlock Holmes is another one yes. too, where there there are people who are like tapped by the whoever owns the legacy to say you can write books in this world. But it still says Tom Clancy, giant, like it takes up half the book cover. Right. But yeah, I thought that was something that is not in any way represented in this movie. You don't see any of that stuff in this film. It's only through, you know, modern interpretation that we get that. It's like, what has it, what has it come to mean for other people? Yes. And a lot of cryptic nonsense is kind of <laughs> what it seems like from what I've read into it. Because I've read about that. And one of the biggest things that's really the legacy that kind of tapped people into this is the scene where Jack Ryan and James Earl Jones's character are giving the debriefing. They are wearing Q level badges for security clearance. It says Q on there. And that is the thing that kind of helped people tap into, oh, Hunt for Red October. What a weird fucking stupid thing to latch on to. <laughs> the letter Q? Yes. Yes. This movie has the letter Q in it. Like, so does Sesame Street. Like, get wrecked, morons. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, why would you even think, oh, we should make this movie what we're... Uh, I don't know. I think White Squall, having seen White Squall, that's the one that for me is the most confusing. I was like, I don't know that there's a whole lot in there to grab onto for this, but okay. No, I saw I saw White Squall in the movie theater when I was younger. Like I I went to see it. Me too. Yes. Because I like Jeff Bridges. And it's just Exactly. When I found out about the White Squall tie-in with the QAnon douchebags, I was just like that seems weird to me. <laughs> you latch on yes! to the weirdest stuff. They do. I mean, like, you know, the white squall is a bad thing. If you guys are trying to draw a connotation that you are the white squall, it's the thing that kills the people in the never. <laughs> never mind. Never mind. There's no You're logical... injecting way too much logic into this. Exactly. I, I, uh, I'm sure in Russia, this is probably or I don't know, maybe in, in certain circles, this might be conspiracy theory, but. Uh, if you guys noticed, the KGB officer who's killed at the beginning's name is Putin. I definitely did. So clearly right now, there's all these, you know, references and et cetera. But at this time, Vladimir Putin was a low ranking KGB officer. So the name is 
Just a coincidence. Extremely likely the name is completely a coincidence. And the, the guy's first name is Ivan. Right, right. That's how he's credited in IMDb is Ivan. Yeah, Putin. I'm sure there's some nut job out there that's making, you know, he's got the strings up on the wall and he's doing the uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia yeah. meme, which is like connecting strings between Q and Putin and whatever. Pepe Sylvia! Pepe Sylvia, this name keeps coming up over and over again. Every day, Pepe's mail's getting sent back to me. Pepe Sylvia, Pepe Sylvia. I look at the mail with well, this whole box is Pepe Sylvia! I do have one last bit of trivia that I wanted to bring up, and it's a couple of paragraphs. It's a little bit long, but I think it's worth reading because while you see some of the process of keys and security on the sub in terms of what it takes to launch a nuclear weapon, it's kind of amazing to see just how much more thorough and complex that process would be in real life. So the Red October is shown using the two-man rule when it comes to launching nuclear missiles, but this technique is not used on either American or Soviet missile boats. It takes more than just two keys to launch a nuclear ICBM. Both countries use virtually the same protocol. If a fire order is received, it must be verified by the commanding officer, executive officer, and the weapons officer. All of them must agree it is a valid order and none of them carry the launch keys. To verify the order, they must check the authorization code against the sealed authenticator, a special sealed envelope containing a verification code. The envelope is stored in a locked safe that requires three keys to open. These keys are the ones carried by the CO, XO, and the weapons officer. The fire control keys are stored in a separate safe locked with a double combination lock. Nobody on board knows the combination to the locks. The combination comes as part of the authorization code in the fire order. It is encoded on the sealed envelope authentication code. In order to open the safe, both the CO and the XO must enter the two combinations at the same exact time, and it's designed so that both codes cannot be entered by the same person. The main safeguard is that the weapons officer and the security guards in the room are to use deadly force to stop any one person trying to use both combination codes. Once the safe with the two firing keys is open, the CO takes one key, the XO takes the other. While this is being done, the weapons officer waits for the rest of the senior officers to agree that the fire order is valid. Only if and when the senior staff agree that this is the case will the weapons officer allow the CO and the XO to take their keys. The slots for the two firing keys are on opposite sides of the fire control room, once again to prevent any one person from using both keys. The keys must both be turned at the same exact time in order to arm the launch sequence. It's kind of like a combination of what we saw in the film plus the scene in T2 where the two characters are, you know, the security guard and uh, Miles Dyson are both turning a key on opposite sides of the door with a bunch of paperwork, envelopes, and other locks and safes and stuff in between. I was like, wow. Yeah, there's a lot of redundancy in that. That is a Mm -hmm. whole lot to make sure that no one person can start a nuclear war basically on their own, which is good. That is good, because that's a moment in the movie when you're like, uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm on board with this, Sean Connery. We're like, I will take the keys. Thank you. You're like, I'm just disregarding this entire safety protocol. And And Tim Curry's there is like, but there's the reason for having two missile keys is so that no one man may may what? (laughs) It's okay. The cook was watching me. I'm glad that they did not proceed with the Russian accent or with the like try to attempt a Russian accent or to get the Russian dialogue because Tim Curry would not have been able to pull it off. I no, don't think. no, not very, not very long. 
And now it's time for the breakdown, where we ask ourselves, what was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Liam, it's another one where I'm, I'm not 100% sure where you're going to fall on this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mystery. It's your favorite spot to be in. It is. Nobody knows where I'm coming from. The objective of this film... Again, it's it's got to come down to whose objective are we talking about? I think if we're talking about John McTiernan, I think the objective was to make a good adaptation of a hit book that everybody liked and make it into a movie that everybody would like. He just wanted to show up, do a good job, make an entertaining film, have some action. You never get too much of a feeling with John McTiernan that there's a whole lot of axes to grind or messages that he really needs to get in there. You know, he's just a workman, like show up, do the job, do it well, kind of director for the most part, but the book being published by the Navy and the DOD seeing this as such a, an opportunity for recruiting can't help, but put it at least one foot firmly in the realm of propaganda. So there are some aspects of that that I think are inescapable with this with this film. I think they wanted to make America look good and heroic and righteous and the military as as a machine that gets things right. I think this was presented as a situation that could go one of three ways. One the Red October could launch a nuclear first strike against America. Two, the Russians could sink the Red October or could trick America into sinking the Red October. Or three, everything works out just fine and America wins. And the first two of those are the most likely scenario. But this movie has, of course, because it is a fine popcorn chomper, this movie has the most difficult but most positive scenario be the one that comes through. So it's a very happy ending. I think it was on target for all of those folks and all of their various objectives. I think John McTiernan showed up, did his job, and made a movie that most people really enjoyed at the time. The military got their good recruitment tool. I don't know what the numbers were for submarine recruitment after this, but... I mean, you have to feel a little bit cooler if you get to walk around your submarine feeling like a steamy, wet 1990 version of Alec Baldwin. You got to feel good about that, right? Yeah, it made money. It's it's garnered a lot of a lot of affection from viewers over the years. A lot of people are still very excited about it. It's getting like 10 out of 10 on user reviews on IMDb and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's a very popular film and it obviously has had a lot of staying power, even though some of the elements are fairly dated. Did I like it? Sure. <laughs> that was very uh, enthusiastic. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I haven't watched this movie in a long time. Apparently I didn't need to. I remembered a great deal of it. There were a couple of things here and there that I didn't remember vividly, but by and large, I remembered this movie. That fucking steel trap you got. You remember everything. Pretty accurately. You know, it's, and it's just, I don't know. I don't know. It's, uh, 
it's nice to revisit every now and then you know it's a it's a an espionage thriller that you can watch with your kids you know what i mean it's it's not a it's not a bad movie yeah it's pg right yeah it's pg it's it's not something that uh it really doesn't rock the boat very much in in any respect honestly like not in a bad way not in a good way we're not even gonna address that pun we're just gonna just no it doesn't <laughs> just gonna I, I was just right gonna let it, it sail right past <laughs> uh no and it just i don't know it uh it is palatable without being remarkable damn so yes i liked it that's some sparkly shade you just threw right there <laughs> <laughs> i like it well enough i just don't care enough about it if that makes sense. I don't know if that, like, I liked it, but who gives a shit? I mean, it doesn't have to represent who you are as a person, you know? Do you like eating popcorn? Yes. Do you like sitting down and watching a thriller? Yes. Eating popcorn is more a part of who I am as a person than this movie. <laughs> like, this. But you can have both, Liam. I could, but I also could eat popcorn and watch something better than this. Some stupid fucking Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't. That's not obviously not a popcorn chomper, Wes Anderson. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. But this one, yeah, this is it's it's good, and I don't give a shit. That's that's kind of where I fall on that. Okay, it's good enough to watch, not good enough to care about. All right, I could take that. It's a good summary, Katie. Hmm. I agree. I think on the whole, you know, McTiernan is trying to make something entertaining. He's definitely trying to make another blockbuster. He's trying to capitalize on his previous success and kind of push himself forward more. I think you can see Predator die hard to this. You can see some growth as a director in both his skill and uh, with his intentions. And I think for outside McTiernan, there was definitely pressure from the U.S. Navy. You know, they gave a lot of resources to this uh, to make a recruiting vehicle and there was certainly a little bit of political angle of America good, Russia, or Soviet Union, not Russia. Soviet Union bad. So bad that even the Soviets want to leave. They will kill your wife. Right, right, through negligence, which is hinted at in the film, although it's not outright stated. I was waiting for that. That was one part I thought they really... We should have heard a little bit more about why Sean Connery was so pissed about that. Right? They could have done a whole flashback for me on the table. I think you could have done 30 seconds or just and just or just included a little bit more in that scene where uh, he's describing to Sam Neill's character. My wife died while I was at sea. Just a little bit more in there would have really fleshed out his character and given us something more to latch on to. But I think they didn't because they were still trying to kind of maintain some ambiguity over what his goals were at that point and where he was going. So was it on target? I think depends on where you are in history. I think at the time it was mostly there. I think it also was a little late to the game. Because of the fall of the Soviet Union, it was only about 50-50 for the folks who were reviewing it, at least at the time. A lot of the positive ratings come from a nostalgia aspect now. And I think for most folks, it's going to hit where they want. You know, if you're watching this movie, you kind of know what you're getting into. And now we have the plethora of Jack Ryan stories and Tom Clancy material that this being the first one feels like little bit of a throwback and it's so simplistic and kind of 
so complex with how it's threading the needle of the story that for someone who's going to enjoy this, you can just kind of sit back and eat your popcorn. So mixed on whether or not it really depends on who you are, if this is going to work for you, I think, especially now. And did I like it? Uh, I mean, it's fine. (laughs) It's fine. I was entertained while watching it, but not in like the way that I think they were hoping I would be entertained more in the like, oh, this is so uh, I know this is this was filmed in 89, but this is such a quintessential early 90s film. The soundtrack and the acting and the the people who are acting in the film. Like, like what's his name? Don LaFontaine doing the voiceover in the uh, in the trailer. Yes. I don't know if he did, but he absolutely did. Sean Connery, Alec Baldwin, James Earl Jones, Scott Glenn, Sam Neill. The Hunt for Red October. No, he did actually the hunt for red october like that exactly no he a hundred percent a hundred percent did it's just it's so uh quintessential you know this really set the tone for a lot of things and therefore it's kind of uh it's not my nostalgia you know it's not the kind of thing i remember because obviously i was five when this came out and i remember watching it later with my with my mom but this is more of feels more like a, a previous generation's nostalgia and they can sit down and really get into it in a way that for me, it just kind of feels a little silly. <laughs> Gen X nostalgia. Yeah. Or even, even, you know, boomer nostalgia, I think for that cold war. That's definitely what it felt like for me. Dan, how'd you feel about it? I'm glad I went last. I'm going to have to come through and wave the rah-rah Navy slash John McTiernan banner on this one. We were nice to John McTiernan. Oh, you guys were fine. You guys were fine. I'm just saying it's nice when the last person can be the like most positive about it, which I think is going to be the case here. Yeah, because I think uh, I I think a lot of people are really looking forward to this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, guys. We promise we don't hate everything. You didn't hate everything. I hate everything. (laughs) You had some fun. Yeah. I mean, like you guys said, sometimes it's hard to parse out. The objective when you're talking about the director versus the the DOD versus the production company, the studio, etc. Clearly, the DOD was 100% on board with this one and wanted to crank it up and was willing to film their subs surfacing 40 times instead of spend a ton of money. And, you know, patriotic rah-rahism aside, it certainly helped out the effects team. Because when things needed to be filmed for real, they had a real Seahawk with a real dude hanging out the bottom of it, which I wish was really Alec Baldwin. That's probably not the case because he's not Tom Cruise. It would have been Tom Cruise. Right. It would have been Tom Cruise. Right. But yeah, I agree with Leo. I mean, I fucking love John McTiernan. I'm sorry. It's just that guy just shows up ready to do his job and then he just kicks fucking ass. You know, it's like that guy was ready to kick ass, make some money and like do his job and he knows what he's doing. And I don't have the same nostalgia for this that I do for Predator, for example, but that just has to do with what I grew up watching. But this is probably one of the first films I watched where I had read the novel, you know, around the same time. And so I I knew a lot more of the detail and that was probably coloring my first viewing. So uh, I've forgotten those details over time, but looking back into it, remembering kind of what Tom Clancy was writing about Captain Ramius 
you know, it's like somewhere in the back of my brain, that stuff is still there. And some of those details just kind of leak out as I'm watching the film. So I think Liam made this comment about Predator and John McTiernan where he was like, you know, it's like it's not deep, but it's well textured. And I think there's some of that going on here as well. I think there's a little more going on here than Predator and again, playing on people's real fears about at the end of the Cold War where they had witnessed the Cuban Missile Crisis and all these scares and all these nuclear drills, you know, you did you did uh, get under your desk drills in school and all that stuff. So there was a very real fear here that I think did not play off as silly for viewers, even in 1990, because of what they had experienced going through school and just living in the U.S. at this time. So it's unfortunate that what decisions they made in the editing and in cutting out parts of the book, like like I said before about Ramius's motivations and what happened to his wife, I would have loved it would not have taken very much screen time to add that in there. I do like that you get a lot of shots of Sean Connery just thinking and not saying anything. And I can appreciate that ambiguity. Like I like that they're not just letting you into his head all the time. And I think that's great. I just wish that we had known a little bit more about his motivations in the film. And yeah, those other two spies, I'm like, I don't think that would have made things so complicated. And this is coming from someone who gets easily confused in spy films. So like if you sit me down and put me in a Mission Impossible or in a what's the other one, Matt Damon? The Born Identity. In Born Identity movies. I mean, I'm going to pause those movies like five times and look at whoever I'm sitting with and be like, wait, what is this guy doing again? Like, I just get lost real quickly and stuff like that. But this is a little too dumbed down even for me. I think that keeping the KGB spy that was a double agent and keeping the American spy that it was informing on what the Russians were doing or what the Soviets were doing. I think that would have been great stuff to have in the movie and it wouldn't have taken that much screen time to just add a little bit more complexity to it. So was it on target? I mean, clearly, you know, the budget was 30 something million dollars and it made 17 on opening weekend. So it was, it grossed a ton of money right when it opened. And I think the world the worldwide take was somewhere around 200 million. So for the time, this was an extremely successful movie financially. Like Liam said, I don't know what it did for uh, Submariner recruitment in the Navy, but clearly it was financially successful. There, there are little things here and there I would have tweaked, like how you don't show a young, hot Alec Baldwin's chest in the uh, shower scene is beyond me. That's just really a waste. Tim Curry could have used a little more screen time. I think that, again, his talents were a little underused. But when you're adapting something from book to film, like you're going to have to make certain changes. And we've talked about that here, the change in medium. You have to kind of respect and understand the medium that you're working in. Theater versus book versus film are three different things. I really like this. I'm not a military techno nerd. I don't get a hard on over, you know, like... Tom Clancy, I think one of the things he wrote in real life for this Naval Institute was on like one of these naval missiles, you know, and it's my dad loves that stuff. My dad has more military encyclopedias that you could ever imagine. And he has read every single one of them front cover to back cover. My dad absolutely goes nuts over all those details. He's still subscribed to current military aviation magazines and loves all that stuff. I work with planes every day, so when I'm not at work, I don't want to see if I can play, and I'm like, whatever, I'm interested in other things, like talking about awesome late 80s movies. 
So I really like this. I'm happy to grab the popcorn and sit down and just enjoy the thriller aspect of this. And I'm really glad we picked it. And I know we're going to have a mixed bag in the audience, but most people love this. And I hope we brought something to the table for you guys. And I'm excited for our next Nabel film. What are we doing next? Next up, we are doing... I have to interrupt Katie here as we made some changes in our upcoming holiday schedule. We're going to release episodes once a month through the holiday season to allow us to catch up with our editing and start 2023 off with a bang. We do have other naval films planned in this series, but we're going to postpone them for a bit as we will be releasing a contemporary film episode in November. Stay tuned for the preview on November 4th. We will re-release a Patreon episode on the public feed in December. And we'll be releasing a very special guest episode in January. And of course, we will still be putting out a brand new Patreon episode each month. So if you want more new material, go to www.dangerclosepod forward slash support and sign up for the extra episodes for only $4 a month. So thank you guys for joining us. We're coming up pretty close here in a few months on the two-year anniversary of this podcast and this project. So if you guys have been listening since the beginning, or if you just joined us, welcome. If you're enjoying the show, please go out and rate and review us. That really helps. Uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify are two of the most popular platforms, so that's the easiest way to help us out. And over here, like Liam said, we'll cast a wide net and keep you guys guessing as to what kind of war films we're going to do. And we'll uh, continue with this naval series with, again, an interruption in the middle to bring you something uh, very new. A special treat. Yeah, we'll let you know about that next episode. So thanks, Katie and Liam, for working hard as usual. And thanks to all you guys for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. Hey, Dan. You're welcome. (laughs) Say bye. 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 Bye.